Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week we take a nostalgic and hopefully informative trip back in time to examine and enjoy the news taking place in the hockey world 50 years ago this week. As usual, this week's episode is brought to you by Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive, and by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful Port Colborne, Ontario. They're purveyors of the finest craft beers in the Niagara region and some amazing pub food. You certainly can't go wrong with the weekly burger and pizza specials at the Breakwall. They are truly gourmet creations. In last week's show... We continued to report on the preparations in Vancouver and Buffalo as those cities got ready to join the National Hockey League for the 1970-71 season. This time around, we're looking at the week of December 15 to 21, 1969, and we have a lot of news to get to this time. Some of the stories that are making headlines this week, the LA Kings, relieved freshman coach Hal Laco of his duties after only 24 games. Uh, The controversy over the use of professionals by Canada in the upcoming World Hockey Championships appears to be coming to a head with headlines coming from several quarters around the hockey world in Canada and abroad. The Philadelphia Flyers made a big change as well as they fired General Manager Bud Poyle. And, of course, we have the usual news and notes and hockey items from around the world during the week and our Hockey Personality of the Week. So, let's get to it. Now, this week, our first story deals with the Los Angeles Kings firing coach Hal Laco after only 24 games. The Kings had hired him this summer to take over the team, and they really didn't show much patience in letting Hal get things going. Now, in the present day of 2019, it's now 50 years ago past that, a couple of coaches were fired as well as we recorded this episode, and the circumstances were much more dire, more serious as it turns out, than what went on with Hal Laco. I'm speaking of the dismissals of Mike Babcock by the Toronto Maple Leafs and Bill Peters from Calgary. Babcock, when he was hired by Toronto after years of success with the Detroit Red Wings, was considered at the time to be the guy at the top of the NHL coaching pile, and the thought was that he would be the man who'd finally bring a Stanley Cup back to Toronto. The Leafs were rebuilding, they changed their management at the upper levels, and Babcock Babcock was the man everybody thought would bring Toronto back to success. Peters, hired by Calgary last year after some good seasons in Carolina, was a Babcock protege. And he was also considered to be one of the brighter new wave of coaches in the big leagues. But looks can be deceiving, can't they? After Badcock was let go by the Leafs, stories began to surface about he had treated, or more accurately mistreated, some of his players. And Peters, closely associated with Babcock in the past, had stories surface about his uh, bad behavior with regard to players as well. In fact, Peters was outright branded as a racist by a former player, Akeem Aliou. 
Now, the deals were are well documented, and I'm not going to rehash them here, other than to say that both men were dead wrong in their methods, and in today's world, they shouldn't have gotten away with this stuff for as long as they did. And that brings me to my point about bringing this up now. Now, these two men have been allowed to hold supreme positions of power and control over young men, and that says a lot about the culture of the world of hockey, both just a few years ago, right up to today. This culture... Culture, thankfully, looks to be changing, and I'm all in favor of that. There's no room in hockey, or in our world in general, for racism, sexism, and bullies who force these and similar views on people who are in their charge. Lots more of these examples are going to surface. You can count on that. Don't be surprised if it takes a while. You see, the hockey community is a very close-knit group and generally takes to protect their own even when those being protected are dead wrong. We saw that in recent weeks when the troops rallied around Don Cherry, even when he was patently wrong in the things he said recently and had been saying for a very long time. The old guard stood by Don, while more of the younger people around the world said, it's about time. Now, I'm encouraged that more players are coming forward, that more stories are being told, and course corrections are being made right from the very highest levels of the game. Remember, it was only a few short years ago when monsters such as Graham James and David Frost were exposed thanks to the bravery of people like Sheldon Kennedy. We are better for it and will be better still because of people like Akeem Aliou. On this show, we cover the hockey world as it was 50 years ago, and we report it just as it happened. While I am dismayed that change hasn't happened as fast as many of us would like, it's encouraging to see that it's picking up steam now. And now we get to what turned out to be the first of a couple firings this week. There were some real shock waves going around the league after the first one, and that was when, after only 24 games into his National Hockey League coaching career, the Los Angeles Kings let go of Hal Lako. Toronto hockey writer Rex McLeod interviewed Lako right after his dismissal and probably had the best coverage of this story, and we have some of Hal's quotes that he gave to Rex. Now, Rex starts out by... uh, asking Hal just uh, how he reacted to the firing, and he said, It took me 24 years to get a chance to coach in the National Hockey League, and then it only lasted 24 games. Johnny Wilson, who coached the Kings American Hockey League team in Springfield, is the guy, by the way, who will take uh, Hal's place. Wilson will have an assistant to help him in his efforts to rehabilitate the Moribund Kings. Doug Harvey one of the all-time great defensemen, in fact, a person many up to this point in history felt was the best defenseman of all time, formerly of the Canadians, New York Rangers, and St. Louis Blues, was hired along with Wilson to coach the Kings. Harvey is going to be a specialist, a defensive coach. Now, McLeod talked by telephone to Laco, and he said he suffered from the usual apprehensions with afflict a coach of a losing team, but he never suspected for a second that his job was in danger. Hal said, I had no inkling I'd be replaced. Maybe I'm too proud. I had a meeting with owner Jack Kent Cook and manager Larry Regan at Mr. Cook's home on last Sunday. 
Maybe I volunteered to resign when they reminded me of the team's horrendous record. We're last in just about everything, every category. They asked me what I thought about it. I just told them I haven't been able to get more out of the team. Laco said that an unfavorable schedule was partly responsible for the Kings' poor record. They won five of their first 24 games. That's bad in any league at any level, no matter what you think. He thought there might have been some other reasons for the team's extremely poor start. Hal says during those 24 games, 14 of them were against Eastern Division or St. Louis, the top team in the West. The other 10 games were against teams in the West Division. In those games, we won four and lost six. So they weren't even above 500 against the worst teams in the division there. Of course, Hal goes on to say, we didn't have Bill White. White's their best defenseman. He's just about ready now, but he's still not back to 100% full strength. We didn't have Larry Keenan and Brent Hughes, a couple more defensemen, for training camp, and we've had to get by with one goalie for most of the season. That one goalie is Jerry Desjardins, who was spectacular in his rookie season last year and has been doing yeoman work playing every minute of every game of the first 24 games so far this season. I can find lots of alibis, said Hal. I don't think it's necessary to put out the alibis. I just hope this doesn't reflect unfairly on my ability as a coach. I still think I can do the job in the NHL. Most people around the league agreed Hal would probably get another opportunity somewhere in the NHL. Laco does have a reputation for being a tough disciplinarian, but he rejected this as contributing to the team's failure. He said he had a good rapport with the players. He had no complaints about interference from the front office. Hal explains, I liked it. I enjoyed the personnel. I like everything about Los Angeles, unlike his predecessor, Red Kelly, who couldn't wait to move back east. The potential here in Los Angeles is unlimited, and I wanted to be part of it. I believe that this team was going somewhere. Laco was a successful coach with Portland in the Western League. Later, when he was a manager coach, and he, when he accepted the offer to coach the Kings, he at that time also owned 25% of that Portland franchise. Laco says the only disagreement I ever had with Cook was when he said the players weren't playing as well as they could. I didn't agree with him on that. I thought they were putting out, and I said if they weren't, it must be the fault of the coach. When you're losing, everybody has suggestions. They all want to help. I still think this team will start to go. It was finally starting to get solidified. I don't think 24 games is enough for 18 players and a new coach to get together. Now, Laco admitted, I do a lot of things different than other coaches. I firm ideas which I developed over 20 years. For instance, I am completely opposed to skating the team on the day of a game. I've been told St. Louis does it, but I never will. Now, the new coach of the Kings, Johnny Wilson, you may remember him from a fine playing career, and at one time, he was the Iron Man of the NHL when he played in 580 consecutive games with the Detroit Red Wings, Chicago Blackhawks, Toronto Maple Leafs, and the New York Rangers.
Now, perhaps the story that's going to have the uh, most long-term effect on hockey as we look back 50 years is this one about the international competition that Canada would like to engage in, but we're reticent to do so because we're not allowed to use our best players. Everybody knows in international hockey in the 1960s, professionals were forbidden. Former pros who had been reinstated as amateurs were allowed to play, but unfortunately, you couldn't take our best players and throw them up against the Russians, the Swedes, the Czechs, and everybody else. There was controversy around the world championships that were to be held in Winnipeg coming up this March. Canada had been told back in a meeting last summer that they would be allowed to use nine professional players as long as they hadn't played in the National Hockey League during the current season. Now word comes down that that may not be the case. Well, Hockey Canada says that it may abandon the World Hockey Tournament altogether, and uh, if their uh, pros are banned from playing, they're not going to participate. Charles Hay, he's the president of Hockey Canada, said, we're in the tournament under the rules as they now exist, and that means the rules adopted in the meeting last summer. If there are any changes in the rules allowing pros, then I can see us withdrawing and forgetting about the tournament in Montreal and Winnipeg. He says, I can't speak for the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, but I can speak for Hockey Canada, and I would have to say that that would apply. We will go. Now, last week, Avery Brundage, he's the president of the International Olympic Committee, he threatened to disqualify countries from the 1972 Olympics if their hockey teams played against Canada's pros in the world tournament. Bunny Ahern, the president of the International Ice Hockey Federation, supported Brundage's ultimatum, and that's a bewildering about face because he had supported Canada just a week before that. In fact, it was Ahern who cast the deciding vote at the meeting in Switzerland last summer, giving Canada permission to use nine pros. Now, the Soviets said that if Canada persists in using nine pros in the tournament, the Russians would stay home, they won't play. A quote from uh, uh, George Lasilov, the president of the Russian Ice Hockey Federation, said this, if Avery Brundage is against the use of professionals, the Soviet Hockey Federation will accept this decision, and Canada should also realize this fact and do the same thing. The next day after these two proclamations, Bunny Ahern said that the World Hockey Championships in Canada are in the balance because of the decision to include professionals. Ahern said it looks as if the Federation will have to make a decision on whether to drop professionals from the World Championships or risk having the national team ruled ineligible for the Olympics. Now, Brundage said in a letter to the IIHF that if professionals play in the World Championships, Ice hockey would be considered in the same category as soccer as far as the Olympics were concerned. In the Olympics, the national soccer teams that play in the World Cup are not eligible for the Olympics. And Mr. Brundage says he sees no reason why the IOC would not adopt the same rules for hockey. So you can sort of understand the uh, 
IOC's thinking and that they want to be consistent and treat hockey the same way that they treat soccer. But this isn't really the case. And Frank Shaughnessy, who is the vice president of the Canadian Olympic Association's Winter Games Committee, said that he is not aware of any rule that disqualifies an Olympic athlete who participates in a game against professionals. The Montreal Olympic official based his summation on an interpretation of the Olympic Eligibility Code in the 1967 edition of the book The Olympic Games, published by the International Olympic Committee itself. In his letter to Earl Dawson of the IIHF, Shaughnessy attached a copy of the artificial interpretation, and he says, you will note that on page 44, it is stated that an athlete is subject to disqualification only if he becomes a professional and has decided to become a professional or who plays in a professional game with a view to becoming professional. So you take this rule, as it's written, an amateur player, if he plays against a professional, does not have his amateur status negated simply by the fact that he played in an exhibition or a tournament against a person who did make a living at that sport. The amateur himself must be committed to turning professional at the time to lose his amateur status, and that is not the case with any of the teams that would be participating in the World Ice Hockey Championships in 1970. So it's obvious that the world is conspiring to keep Canada from using their best players in international competition, and this really isn't fair. This is why I hate international hockey, hated it at the time, and hate it now. I love the competition of best against best, but when you can't send your best against another country's best, why bother? I'll applaud their decision if, in fact, they do withdraw from the tournament. It'll be a shame, though, because the people in Montreal and Winnipeg have been preparing for months for this event, and it's a, it would be awful for them to have to lose this and, of course, lose the funds that would have been coming in as uh, part of the tournament. Now moving back to domestic hockey issues. Uh, in his uh, newspaper column this week, former Maple Leaf general manager coach Punch Imlach talked about some trades he's made in the past. Uh, Punch said, if I was ever asked for the best trade I ever made, I'd have to say it was the Red Kelly for Mark Riom deal in 1960 in a trade between the Maple Leafs and the Red Wings. Kelly was the difference between Toronto being a good team and a Stanley Cup winner. Punch says that few people realized just how good a hockey player Red was. He won the Lady Bing Memorial Trophy four times. He won the Norris Trophy the first year it was ever awarded as the best defenseman in the league. Of course, when he came to Toronto, we made a centerman out of him, and he started a new career as a forward. It wasn't just a coincidence that Toronto did not make the playoffs the year Red retired to coach the Los Angeles Kings. Punch talked about another deal in January 1965. Actually, he said it was January 65. It was in June. The Leafs sent Ron Stewart to the Bruins and acquired three players for Ron. Orlan Curtinback, Pat Stapleton, and Andy Hebbington. 
Now, Curtinback played for the Leafs and played well. Stapleton, now with Chicago and their captain in 1969, is one of the best defensemen of the league this year. But he was lost in the draft, and people wondered, why was Punch dumb enough not to protect Stapleton in the draft so the Hawks could scoop him up? Well, you have to remember this. This was the same year Carl Brewer quit the Maple Leafs just before training camp. In the draft, Imlac protected Brewer and didn't protect Stapleton. He didn't have room to protect everybody. And if he had a choice between Pat and Carl, it was going to be Carl. Stapleton had not yet established himself as a bona fide NHL defenseman. Now, hindsight's a great thing, of course. Punch says, if we could have foreseen the Brewer incident... We could have had Stapleton, which wouldn't have been a bad acquisition. This made the Brewer event just that much more galling to me. Now, Punch talked about another deal that he really, really uh, was happy with. That was the one in May of 1965 when Andy Bathgate went to Detroit after he helped them win a Stanley Cup in 64. The deal was made in May 65 with Bathgate, Billy Harris, Gary Jarrett going to the Red Wings for Marcel Pronovo, Larry Jeffrey, Eddie Joyle, Lowell McDonald, and Autry Eretzkin. Quite a haul for the Maple Leafs. This was the same year that Brewer had quit, and Punch says, let me tell you, I was congratulating myself on how lucky I was come September that I had defenseman of Pronovo's caliber to fill in for Brewer. Now, that deal helped Toronto win another Stanley Cup in 1967. But, of course, as we all know, they haven't won since. The other firing this week was not of a coach, but of a general manager. Norman Bud Poyle was let go by the Philadelphia Flyers after running their team as the general manager since its inception. Ed Conrad of the Philadelphia Daily News had this report, and he says evidently Bud Poyle knew what he was talking about the very first day of training camp this season when he sarcastically stated that the owners are trying to get rid of me. The Flyers did just that this week when they dismissed Poyle as the GM due to, quote, fundamental differences of opinion between him and the club owners. Following a series of closed-door conferences at the Spectrum, Ed Snyder, principal owner and chairman of the Flyers Board of Governors, announced that Poyle's relationship with the NHL team had been severed immediately. Poyle, who's 45, had served as the general manager of the team since it was established, and uh, his contract does not expire till the end of the 1970-71 season. Snyder said the financial terms of the contract will be honored in full. Well, he really wouldn't have much choice about that, would he? According to Ed Snyder, the action was taken in the best interests of the Flyer organization. Isn't that always the reason? The best interests of the team? He revealed that Poyle and the owners, Snyder, Bill Putnam, and Joe Scott, continually were in a disagreement on several phases of the club's operation, and such a situation could not be tolerated. Now, uh, Snyder, Putnam, and Scott are well-known hockey experts. Well, actually, they're not, and they disagreed with the one guy in their front office who is a hockey expert, or at least has years and years and years of hockey experience and running organizations. Snyder indicated 
that Keith Allen, who currently serves as the assistant general manager, will handle the duties as general manager until a decision is reached on who a successor might be. Allen, who's 46, had coached the Flyers in the first two seasons but relinquished that job last summer in order to uh, accommodate the hiring of Vic Stasiuk, who had been coaching the Flyers farm team at Quebec of the American Hockey League. Dan Proudfoot of the Toronto Globe and Mail reached a poil for a comment, and uh, but really wasn't too, at least he didn't sound too upset. Poyle said, owners have the right to fire people, and they also have the right to finish last. Bill Hufelder is a hockey writer with the Pittsburgh Press, and he's been watching the developments around the National Hockey League since expansion with his city, of course, Pittsburgh, coming in. And he thinks that the fix is in as for how the established teams will maintain their competitive edge going into the future. Ufelder writes in the press that the first National Hockey League expansion hasn't set Boston Winter up for life, but almost for life, almost forever. Bill says in the next four years, the two Eastern Division clubs will get almost half of all the first-round amateur draft selections which had belonged to the Western Division teams. Scotty Bowman is Hufelder's authority on this. Bowman told Hufelder that Minnesota and Los Angeles have dealt away all of their choices, leaving the four Western teams to divide a total of 11. If Boston and Montreal play their cards right, Bowman says... They won't be threatened for 10 years. The amateur draft, according to Scotty Bowman, is the lifeline of any expansion club because it's their only opportunity to obtain legitimate superstars. Scotty says when you have some great players, you only have to fill the rest of the team with good ones. Boston's not that great, but Bobby Orr makes them strong. He's made the biggest impact on hockey in 20 years. Scotty says that many nights, Red Berenson has made the difference for us. Particularly last year, Glenn Hall and Jacques Plant made the difference in many games with their goaltending. Now, the Blues acquired Berenson almost two years ago in a trade with New York, and Bowman considers that a once-in-a-lifetime deal. If you remember, the main player who went to the Rangers in that trade was Ron Stewart, and Berenson was considered a fourth-liner at best with the New York team. What I'm getting at, Scotty says, is you're not going to get superstars through trades. That was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. You're going to get them in the amateur draft. Now, the players, the new teams, Vancouver and Buffalo, that is, will hold them for a year, he said, and they're going to get the two best amateurs. There's one kid who's coming up, Gilbert Perrault. He's a center with the Montreal Junior Canadiens, and he is fantastic. He's the top junior in Canada by quite a bit. Within a year, he'll probably be better than any young player in the Western Division. We all know history teaches us that Scotty's crystal ball, in this case, was dead on. Gilbert Perot became one of the best players ever taken in uh, by an expansion team as their first pick, and he was the mainstay and the glue that held the Buffalo franchise together in those early years. Last 
Last week, we spoke about the Boston Bruins submitting a rules change proposal to the National Hockey League, which would force all NHL players to wear helmets. Well, this week, Frank Orr of the Toronto Star wrote an interesting story about helmets, players, and why they don't want to wear them. Frank says that Weston Adams, chairman of the board of the Bruins, filed the motion with the Rules Committee to make the wearing of helmets mandatory for all games. NHL President Clarence Campbell explained in a telegram vote would be taken by the Rules Committee, which has a representative from each NHL team. The result will be passed on to the NHL governors for consideration and a decision, meaning the Rule Committee could recommend it, but the governors, in their infinite wisdom or lack thereof, could say, nope, we ain't going to do it. Sid Solomon, the third of St. Louis, said, I haven't given it too much thought. I'd have to reserve my decision at this point in time. My policy on such a matter would be to present it to the committee and make it public until a decision had been reached. David Molson of Montreal said, I'd like to know the feeling of our players on the helmet question. They're free to wear them or not wear them. Only one, J.C. Trombley, does wear a helmet for Canadians. The game's been going on for a 100 years without them. Hockey's a more personal sport than any other. Do the proximity of the spectators to the players who are recognized instantly. The players want to retain this identity. They want to retain that rather than protect the most important part of the body. Stafford Smythe of Toronto appeared to be uh, one of the wise men in this whole uh, uh, club of clowns. I'm in favor of helmets, he says. We were the first club in junior A hockey to make them mandatory for our team. Marley's have worn them for two years. The remainder of our minor teams below junior A have worn them for five. However, and here comes the but, it's difficult to teach an old dog new tricks to get veteran players to wear helmets. A player like Tim Horton, who's been playing the game for 25 years without a helmet, won't want to change. Now, some leagues and teams have taken the step to mandatory helmets already. The International Hockey League, which is a semi-professional team in the central United States, has a rule. The OHA Junior A Series teams must wear the headgear after January 1st. And Boston's Central League farm team, Oklahoma City Blazers, is the first fully professional team that has to wear them under a club rule. Now, Frank Orr talked to Maple Leaf defenseman Pat Quinn. He's a big, rough-and-tumble guy, but he's a really bright guy as well. And Pat had uh, an interesting uh, statement to make about helmets. Pat says, according, uh, that it's the old sissy problem. That's what prevents players from wearing the helmet. Making them mandatory is the only way most players would ever wear them, Quinn says. Many players won't wear them because there's a sissy connotation attached to a helmet. I think management of some teams think this way too. They don't want their players looking like sissies. I don't know why they can't see the logic that if everybody wears one, Nobody's a sissy. Now, why doesn't Quinn, who's six foot three and two hundred and five pounds, uh, worry about something like this? He wouldn't look like a sissy wearing a miniskirt. Well, Quinn says I think it's the sissy thing that keeps me from wearing one as well. Now, one helmeted leaf right now is Paul Henderson. Paul says that the doctor told me to wear it for my own protection a couple years ago. 
When you have to wear one, it's easier. If helmets were mandatory, many guys wouldn't throw them away the first time they sweat the way they do now. Besides, he says, I got a nasty concussion from a puck that had bounced off the protective glass. If I'd been hit directly with the shot that was coming, it would have been more serious. I think of that whenever I sweat too much under the helmet. Smart guy, Paul Henderson. But if you really want to see the antiquated thinking that goes on in the NHL, you only have to look at Philadelphia coach Vic Stasiak, whom many people figure is a dinosaur anyway. Here's what Vic has to say about helmets. I'll tell you this. If I were still playing and the guy I was fighting was wearing a helmet, I'm sure as hell wouldn't drop my stick. Fighting a guy who's wearing a helmet just isn't the same as fighting a guy who's not wearing one. Well, duh. It keeps the guy without a helmet at a distinct disadvantage. And now we move on to the news and notes of the week. And right off the bat, one of the first stories we have is one of the great individual performances of this season. On December 20th, the Bruins topped the Penguins 6-4 to with Bobby Orr setting up five of the Bruins' six goals. We have some highlights of Bobby's work in that game. And here comes Bobby Orr. He's got Sanderson. Breakaway Sanderson. The second one of the night. His shot is blocked by Al Smith. Orr goes back to the Bruins' corner. Starts back for Boston. Bobby from center ice, rebound, Al Smith puts it behind the net for Wally Boyer. Around the boards for Glenn Sather, or has it, across to Esposito, he guns, goal, it's 2-1 Boston. Time of the goal at 19 minutes and 22 seconds as the Bruins take the lead. Or trying to shake Hextall, faking one way then another, gets it out to John Diesick. Mackenzie loose on the right wing. Mackenzie, shot, goal, it's all tied up as Mackenzie rifled one in from the top of the circle and beat Smith to the far corner. Now, the interesting part about that game is Orr sent Sanderson in on two other clear-cut breakaways, one we heard at the beginning of the clip, and he failed to score. If Derek had converted both of those two clear-cut breakaways, Orr would have had seven assists in the game. The Oakland Seals traded veteran left-winger Gene Ubriaco to the Chicago Blackhawks in exchange for center Howie Menard, both a couple of spark plug type players. Howie Menard played 19 games for the Blackhawks, scoring two goals, three assists for five points. Ubriaco had been a disappointment for the Seals this year, having only a goal and assist thus far in the season. Last week, we talked about the Bruins suspending young forward Wayne Cashman indefinitely for the dastardly offense of breaking training rules. Well, this week, the Bruins reinstated the uh, truculent winger, fining him a total of two games pay. That's about 500 bucks to Wayne. Coach Harry Sinden refused to elaborate on the situation, but Kevin Walsh of the Boston Globe suggested that Cashman was forced to sit out after he got into a severe argument with the coach Sinden 
over his loss of his regular spot and a subsequent lack of playing time. In recent games, Sinden had shifted Cashman to several different lines and then leaving him kind of a extra forward spot with no regular line mates. Wayne didn't uh, appreciate that. Some suggested that Wayne may have been drowning his sorrows after games and practices a little too enthusiastically for Bruins management's preference. Flyers goalie Bernie Perrant says that his backup and good friend Doug Favell should be asking the team to trade him. Bernie says he has nothing but respect for his longtime sidekick and that, as a friend to a friend, he feels Doug would be better off playing for a team other than the Flyers. Bernie says, If I were in Doug's situation, I'd be asking to be traded. I'm 24 years old, same as he is, and I feel the worst thing that can happen to a young goaltender is to play only maybe 20 games a season as Doug is doing now. If he were playing with another team, he'd probably be playing a lot more, and this is the biggest thing about being a goalie. You must play a lot and get plenty of work in order to keep sharp. You cannot be sharp by playing only once in a while. Pittsburgh Penguins defenseman Bob Wojtowicz will be out for a couple of weeks with a slight separation of his left shoulder. Bob is the leading scorer among Western Division defensemen with four goals, 13 assists for 17 points. His absence leaves the Pens with five NHL rear guards. They would be Bob Blackburn, Dwayne Rupp, Tracy Pratt, veteran Jimmy Morrison, and Mike McMahon. And a tough break for Toronto's 34-year-old rookie goaltender Marv Edwards. He's going to be out of the lineup for at least 10 days with a knee injury. Now that leaves just veteran Bruce Gamble to take on the bulk of the puck-stopping duties for the Maple Leafs. Edwards had won 6, lost 5, and tied 2 for Toronto with a 3.75 goals against average. Gamble's average, however, is a good 2.34, and he'll give the Leafs adequate goalkeeping, but I doubt it'll be enough to get this team into the playoffs. More injury news from the NHL. The Minnesota North Stars announced they had lost forward Jean-Paul Parise for probably two to three weeks with a partial separation of his left shoulder. Seems to be a lot of that type of injury going around, a lot of shoulder separations these days. Just a day later... Now, the team said that the injury might not be as serious as first anticipated, and the star left winger could return in a few days. And as it turned out, JP was back with some kind of special harness holding the whole joint together, and he had a pretty good season with the North Stars. Montreal Canadiens have called up a young right winger by the name of Phil Roberto from the Montreal Voyageurs of the American Hockey League. Phil, will you remember, is a graduate of the Niagara Falls Flyers of the OHA Junior A Series. Roberto will replace left wing John Ferguson, whose uh, injured thumb is still bothering him, and they had another cast placed upon it this week. It hasn't healed properly, and according to coach Claude Laurel, the Habs policeman will be out of the lineup, quote, indefinitely. Well, with the NHL expanding, the American Hockey League is tickering around with their structure as well. The Board of Governors of the AHL voted unanimously this week to allow the Pittsburgh Penguins to shift their American Hockey League farm team to New Haven, Connecticut for the 1971-72 season, but that's pending the completion of a new arena 
in that city. New Haven's not far from Hartford, and that they've been making noise in Hartford that they'd like to get an AHL team as well. I don't know if Hartford could support professional hockey, but if any city has a good hockey fan base, Hartford might just be it. Now, here, here's some trade rumor department. Uh, earlier in the week before he was fired, the Flyers' then-GM Bob Poyle said that rumors of a three-way deal involving the Flyers, the Kings, and the Bruins were just rumors, but they were published in several papers, including those in Los Angeles, Boston, and Philadelphia. Now, the deal would have said that the Flyers would send a young defenseman to the Kings in exchange for veteran rear guard Bill White. He recently returned after a lengthy holdout, but he's not happy in L.A., wants to be traded. The Flyers would take White and immediately flip him to the Bruins uh, for allegedly forwards Wayne Cashman and Gary Doak. A young right winger, also played in Niagara Falls, Steve Atkinson, his name's been mentioned as part of a deal as well. Now, another report had the Bruins sending Don Marcotte and Doak directly to the Kings for White. Over the past couple of weeks, all the rumors floating around seem to indicate that White will end up either in Boston or his hometown of Toronto. Now, just two days after this uh, rumor was published in the L.A. papers, uh, Los Angeles General Manager Larry Regan said that the Kings were very happy with White. Everybody else on the team, they're not having any trade discussions. No players have to worry about being moved. Penguins General Manager Jack Riley's at it again over referee John Ashley. He has a bitter feud going on with Ashley, whom he accuses of having told one of his players that since he plays for an expansion team, he shouldn't expect any breaks from the officiating. Here's a statement that Riley fired off in protest over Ashley's recent work. We had trouble with him in Detroit on November 2nd. We had trouble with him in Boston this past Sunday, and we had more trouble on Wednesday night. We have never defeated an Eastern Division team when John Ashley was refereeing, although we've played some very good games. Ashley seems to feel there are just six teams in this league, the six in the East Division, and the others don't belong. Interestingly, I had a conversation with Dick Duff a few years ago about expansion, and he said that even among the players, uh, the general impression was that anybody who played in the Western Division was of a little bit of inferior caliber than players who were playing for the pre-expansion teams. Now, no one said that coaching the Toronto Maple Leafs was going to be easy, but they didn't say it'd be hazardous to your health, but it could be. Jim Proudfoot in the Toronto Globe and Mail reports that Toronto Maple Leafs rookie coach John McClellan has lost 21 pounds worrying about the fortunes of his struggling NHL team. Johnny uh, looks noticeably thinner on the bench and he could waste away to nothing the way this team is performing this year, and there doesn't seem to be any improvement on the horizon. And now we get to our hockey personality of the week. And this week, uh wanted to talk about this guy. He made news this week because he's really an interesting character that had a, a wonderful career as a player, coach, general manager, even an executive of a league 
couple of the minor leagues, and he isn't in the Hall of Fame as a builder. Our personality of the week is Norman Bud Poyle. Now, this week, 50 years ago, he was deposed as the general manager of the Flyers, but he was inducted into the Hall of Fame as a builder in 1990. Uh, Bud was a fine player, but a superlative hockey executive. He rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. A lot of people thought that Bud, quite frankly, spouted a lot of BS, but really, he knew what he was doing when it came to the business of hockey. Success was a recurring theme in his career, both on and off the ice. His determination and positive outlook won him a legion of followers and admirers during an exemplary time in the business of hockey. We thank author Kevin Shea for for this look at Bud's, uh, Bud's career. He was born in Fort William, Ontario. He was a local hero up in Thunder Bay, as it's called now, with a fine scoring touch and a deadly accurate shot. He was leading the Thunder Bay League in scoring when the Toronto Maple Leafs signed him to a pro contract in November 1942. He led the Toronto playoff scoring in the 43 playoffs and formed the effective flying forts line with fellow Fort William natives Gus Bodner and Gay Stewart, both legendary names in the lore of Toronto Maple Leaf history. After serving in World War II, Bud returned to Toronto and he won a Stanley Cup with the club in 1947. He seemed set with the Leafs, but he was stunned when he was one of the five ordinary players, as the quote went, sent to Chicago for superstar center Max Bentley. Poyle went on to play for five of the original six teams, the lone exception being the Montreal Canadiens. In 1950, Bud began the second stage of his pro career as a coach of the Tulsa Oilers in the United States Hockey League. He then moved into the Detroit organization and ran their Glace Bay team in the Maritime Senior League for a while. The very next season, Poyle began a nine-year run coaching the Edmonton Flyers of the Western Hockey League. At that time, that was a professional league on par with the American League. He won three league titles and was named Executive of the Year by the Hockey News in 1953. During this time, he developed a close relationship with Jack Adams, who was grooming Poyle to be his successor in Detroit. When Adams stepped down, however, the Red Wings opted for former star Sid Abel instead of Bud Poyle. Bud became disgruntled with that decision, left the organization, and took over uh, running the Western Hockey League San Francisco Seals, winning the league championships and attracting crowds of over 10,000 to the Cow Palace. And that really made what was going on in Oakland so incongruent. They could not draw for NHL hockey. Now, we thought that the Seals would uh, hire Poyle when the NHL expanded, in 1967, but that wasn't the case. They were taken in by the line spewed to them by Rudy Pillis and later Bert Olmsted. Poyle instead signed with the Philadelphia Flyers as their general manager. He played a major role in forming the nucleus of that future. Uh, he drafted and traded for players like Bobby Clark and Bernie Perrant. Now, Bud, after the time that we're talking about now in 1969, will become, as we talk about in just a few weeks, the first general manager of the Vancouver Canucks. 
He guided that team until 1973 when he moved to the World Hockey Association as executive vice president of the league. In 1976, he returned to the minors and began an eight-year term as a commissioner of the Central Hockey League and during the 1983-84 season, then the International Hockey League, as head Jack Riley resigned and Poyle took over, giving him two leagues to run at the same time, but that was only for a short period of time. Later that year, Poyle had to suspend the operations of the CHL, but he ran the International League until he retired in 1989. That's our Personality of the Week. One of the good ones from the past, Bud Poyle. Well, that's our show for this week, boys and girls. What did we learn this time around? Well, we learned that expansion team owners are just like the guys who run the established NHL teams when it comes to exercising patience in their managers and coaches. In other words, they don't have much patience. Two guys got let go this week. We learned that Canada's going to stand firm on the deal it thought it had with the IIHF on the use of professionals in international hockey, and it could jeopardize the tournament be held in Canada this spring. We learned more about the culture in hockey when it comes to NHL players doing the most sensible thing and wearing helmets. They think they're sissies. And we learned that current NHL executive David Poyle comes by his skills honestly thanks to his dad, Norman Bud Poyle. Now, we'll return next week with more news and notes from the world of hockey in 1969. Some of the stories we're working on include more on the issue of players wearing helmets, yet another new owner of the Oakland Seals, will they ever get it right there? And where Panchumlak will eventually end up working. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our intro music comes to us courtesy of the rural Alberta Advantage, and other musical pieces in the show are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years, and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey, and at our WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. If you like good music and good conversation this week while you're listening, waiting for our next episode, have a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast by Andy Cole. Each week, Andy and a guest have some interesting conversation, and they also write and perform a completely new musical piece written during the session. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, and we will see you next time.